Truth or Politics, Episode 11, Interview with Don Riley. Um, the actual break took place after Charlottesville in 2017. Um, however, I had been quite vocal and maybe even shocked myself when I think about it, uh, staying staying a member of the party through 2016 um, and, and just seeing what a debacle um, our process led to uh, in, in the nominee. Um, but a, after, after Mr. Trump became uh, the nominee, I knew there probably wasn't any place for me <laughs> left in, in the Republican Party. Um, I feel like um, the principles, and especially the principles that I went to Washington on and after the W. Bush campaign of compassionate conservatism, um, were, were mostly lost. The truth will set you free. At least that's what I've been told I said the truth will set you free At least that's what I've been told I've got misinformation on the left and right of me And in the middle, a truth Politics Podcast. This is your only show. This is the truth of politics podcast. This is your only show. All right, everybody. So here I am with Don Riley. Um, we we're, it's going to be a serious interview, but we'll steal my laugh through the whole thing. You, you never know. Um, Don is uh, in the uh, Facebook group site that we have. She uh, typically will post quite a few um, uh, bits of information that she sees. Matter of fact, I don't think Facebook knows that I have any other friend right now than Don with as many. Uh, post that I see her, her shoot through there. But um, Dawn has worked in Washington, D.C. She currently does um, independent contracting, but I'd like her to um, introduce herself, tell us a little bit about her background and uh, how she went from where she grew up to Washington, D.C., and then we'll take on a few more questions from there. Dawn, it's all you. Great. Thanks, Rob, for having me on. Appreciate it. And um, as you noted, uh, right now it is uh, definitely fertile territory for conversation along these lines that we're going to have. So, Good word, fertile. Uh, <laughs> it's that ag background of it mine, is. you know. It is. You know, it's, uh, it, it just always seeps out a little bit. But um, anyway, uh, uh, 
uh, background is Mackville, Kentucky, Washington County, grew up on a farm, um, went to Center College. I'll skip over a lot of those things. Uh, went we, to Center we need College, you to. graduated <laughs> in 89. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but my family had always been involved in politics. Uh, both my mom and dad were active in uh, early governor's races, um, House of Representative races, etc., uh, which always uh, piqued my interest. And watching the nightly news after dinner was uh, just what we did as a family every night. So um, I always found it um, to be interesting and something that uh, everyone needed to do. Um, so with that, went to center and found myself becoming a uh, government major. Um, didn't really have any idea. Um, a lot of you will know I was pretty footloose and fancy free at center so <laughs> was was there a particular was a time and then I got scared. yeah was there a particular professor there that you really um uh that, that piqued your interest more than others or it was really still just government in itself with that that family background Dr. Matheny and I think you'd find a lot of center grads um go back and say Dr. Matheny is the one who really kept them interested and um, just threw so many things out at you to think about and look at our basis of our government. Um, I had the privilege of going with him and Dr. Cantrell to England for a spring semester. Mm. Uh, that was just awful, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thankful every day for that uh, liberal arts education because uh, the ability to think and especially right now the ability to think use critical thinking to go through a lot of the issues we're facing is is beyond important right right, now. right right and of course one of the Cantrell's greatest things to think about as I learned from him one day when he said to me Barry today is a day where I just want to sit on my porch and drink bourbon Absolutely. <laughs> he, he was a fine guy, though. I really liked him. So so for those of you listening to this who are the, the few people who are in India, Germany, Russia, and Canada, uh, we're talking about Center, C-E-N-T-R-E, College of Kentucky, that is located in Danville, Kentucky. And as I have told many people, I grew up thinking, because my parents went there, it's actually called Danville. And uh, I had no idea how to spell that when uh, I heard them say that until I actually saw it spelled at one point. But um, so government major, center college, and then you got an opportunity. Did you go straight to D.C. after that? I did. I went to uh, D.C. on a fall internship uh, with Senator McConnell um, right after the summer after graduation. Um I was fortunate enough to go to the inauguration for George H.W. Bush oh. on a bus with the 5th District Republican crowd, uh, which was life-changing in itself <laughs> I bet. at that time. Um, and that's kind of where it all began. Hmm. Um, with that internship, you were there for four months. It wasn't a short six-week internship like most summer or spring internships are. Um, and, um, I was fortunate to be hired on within a month of my arrival, uh, where I got to spend time in the front office group, 
reading and uh, answering phone call constituents. Um, so um, through that, started building my network and learning all sorts of things about all sorts of subjects. Um, following that, I settled into ag, uh, where I became the legislative correspondent for the uh, agriculture issues. Uh, worked in the farm bill, mainly focused on nutrition issues which served me well when I went to USDA then under uh, George W. Bush administration. Um, I was one of the nine parachuters, they called us, uh, that came into USDA on the very first day of the administration. Because you flew into dangerous territory? Um, you could call it that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get the analogy here. It's uh, it's pretty overwhelming to walk into the largest department behind the uh, Department of Defense, uh, and there yeah. are only nine of you to uh, kind of tackle all the issues that the U.S. Department of Agriculture covers. Wow. Well, I, you yeah. know, I thought about that because I thought, uh, who's if if people don't really understand, I didn't. I, I had a, a good picture of this myself, but if people really don't understand how important slash influential and powerful the Department of Agriculture is, um, they are sorely mistaken what helps run the United States. And uh, so that's certainly uh, an opportunity to be there in the, the, the absolute nuts and bolts of a lot of the, um, uh, whatever you want to call it, the political machinations uh, that, are, that are going on. Of course, I don't know how how political, so to speak, in quotes, it is other than just getting the job done. Um, did you find that there were political obstacles to goals that you guys needed to achieve when it came to uh, ag and, and or the USDA? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. Well, uh, there you go. From, from the time I had worked on Capitol Hill, um, which was 89 to 91, and then I lobbied downtown from 92 to 94 uh, for the tobacco growers in the region, um, things had changed dramatically. Everything had become increasingly polarized, um, extremely political. Um, ag was fortunate enough not to have quite as many battles, but um, with the onset of climate change, the use of the term sustainability, um, all, all of those things changed. Mm -hmm. And I think we actually saw a dramatic difference in how Congress functioned. Uh, when I was there, we had at least weekly meetings amongst uh, the staffs of the Senate Ag Committee uh, about what was going on, what direction we wanted to go. Uh, both sides of the aisle, not just the Republicans meeting, mm -hmm. Democrats meeting. We all would meet together. And those relationships just deteriorated beyond recognition from the time I was there in the um, early to mid-90s to 2000. Mm -hmm. It was fast and furious. You know, the Republicans did what the Republicans did. The Democrats did what the Democrats did. And... Um, they didn't get together a whole lot. Yeah. Well, that is one of the um, further questions I was going to ask. We can kind of get to that now. And it was, and we talked about this when you and I sort of did our pre-interview talk is when do we think that this chasm, <laughs> this, this big divide 
really started in politics. I mean, and, and I think you at one point had said that it, it well, I, I, I don't remember exactly where we landed on that, but you're saying somewhere in the 90s things got really political. Now, is that with the introduction of Bill Clinton's administration? Is that when things became polarized? Um, I think it was starting then. Mm-hmm. I think when we saw a real polarization was with um, the contract for America and Newt Gingrich being Speaker of the House. Okay. We yeah. saw much more definitive lines drawn to where all the Republicans had to vote the same way on the vast majority of issues. There was a very, very strong block. The room for being different within the Republican caucus shrank. Um, once upon a time, um, when I joined, you know, the Republican Party was the big tent. Uh, I think we've seen a complete shift now from the Republican Party being the big tent to maybe the Democratic Party being the big tent, definitely more big tent than I used to think it was. Um, but, um, it's just progressed over and over and over the tight fistedness of leadership, um, over walking lockstep. And, and, and also I think it's come down to a time when votes are looked at like a game. Um, you know, it, it's not oftentimes um, about the policy. It's mm-hmm. about who can, who can win, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, becomes increasingly frustrating when uh, you, you see so many problems around us uh, that need attention and need attention for the right reason for the American public who, I don't know, they're supposed to be public servants for a reason, uh, which maybe we've forgotten about. Right. I mean, and we'll certainly get to uh, Donald Trump here pretty soon. But, you know, um, number one agenda from him from the beginning was seemingly always wanting to be number one, always wanting to promote the biggest, the best. No one else has ever done this. No one else has ever heard of this. And we've won. And, uh, you know, even the verbiage from his followers was very, um, whatever you want to call it, competitive sounding. And it was always about this battle and winning more than it was... <laughs> ever you know if, if it was um, an agreement between parties then it was typically we you know broke the other side down to be able to get this but you know you mentioned big tent and this is the the one voicemail i didn't get to send you that and that's my co-host bradley he actually mentioned big tent politics and he was asking about um he believed that a lot of that started with reagan and that then it got away from being big tent I hate to admit, I don't necessarily understand what big tent means. So can you help me run through that a little bit? What you mean by big tent? Do you mean a a very diverse group? Um, What what exactly do you mean by big tent? Absolutely. I mean, it it was uh, supposed to be where people from different backgrounds, different beliefs uh, were included in conversations and developing the policy stance of the party moving forward. Um, you know, you, you had what, what we called the, uh, Rockefeller Republicans, you know, and then mm. you had your Reagan Republicans, uh, you had folks that were very, 
much more um, middle of the road, shall we say, on uh, social policy. But when it came to financial issues, tend more towards the conservative side. Okay. Uh, so there were more people like that where now I think we have seen um, just a complete pullback on social policies within the Republican Party. There is no room there um, for anyone with uh, any any um, any notion towards uh, women's reproductive rights or um, LGBTQ rights. Right, uh, right. A- any of those things, you know, you you are you are wrong if you uh, espouse any of those thoughts. Is I love talking to you about this. Are there have there been any, let's say, books out there or any? Um, I don't know if it's just uh, personal stories by folks who have covered these types of topics that you are aware of who are former uh, either, either former uh, staffers like yourself on whatever level or people from the outside, like a reporter looking in who has sort of covered this type of topic. I think this is just fascinating. I'm always interested in sort of like the, the process, the beginning of, and what influences things to go the way it does. I've got a, uh, a fiction writer that I like to quote who talked about things called social forces or social physics. And uh, I always think about that as it applies to real world. But do you know, is there anything out there that's like that? Um, I should do some more thinking on that, but yeah, I am get back to us. Ab- a- absolutely sure that there is. And in fact, right before we came on, I saw where uh, Cindy McCain's putting out a new memoir. It's going oh, to be yeah. published right. uh, end of April. So I think she will most definitely get into some of those mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. Uh, along the way. Okay. Uh, okay. And how that works. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, so when... Give me a timeline. When did you leave D.C. and then start on your other ventures? Well, I did two tours in D.C. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I was there from the fall of 89 until the spring of 94 um, when I came back to run a congressional campaign for Susan Stokes here in the 3rd District of Kentucky. Um, and then my second tour was uh, back in D.C. after t- the 2000 campaign with George W. Bush. And I served at USDA there for the uh, first full term. Um, and um, so that means I started on day one. And my last official day at USDA was Inauguration Day of 2005. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I'll just um, I don't I don't want to sensationalize this because it's such a you know traumatic real life event. But I know when we talked earlier, um, I was talking to you about 9-11, and you had said that you were in an airplane with somebody when that happened. And now, who who were you with and what was going on when that happened? Well, I was actually in an airplane the day before. Day before, that's right. Thank you for clarifying. The day before, and that, um, that airplane just happened to be Air Force Two, and I was returning from a... Um, an advance with Vice President Cheney actually in Lexington with the uh, Southern Governors Association. Oh, okay. So. Well, it make complete sense. I'd been that... down here. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I'd been down here for about a week 
um, prepping and then uh, doing the events with him. And then um, was fortunate enough to be asked uh, to fly back on Air Force Two back to uh, Andrews. Gotcha. And, uh, we, we came into Andrews and it was a stormy, awful afternoon. Mm. Um, my friend, my friend Dan Wilmot, who was the uh, lead advance for Vice President Cheney, drove me home and um, was storming like crazy. And then the next morning, you know, we all woke up to a brilliant blue sky, and we know what happened after that. Right, right, absolutely. Well, so let's let's get down to it. Um, I don't think we've been spinning our wheels, but I, I want all of this information that we've talked about so far to give us some perspective and, and let everybody know how deeply dug in you were in D.C. and involved with everything that was going on and how much you, um, I think you've already said it, but then how much you really believed in the Republican Party and, and what you guys did there as a party um, for America. I think that's fair to say, correct? Yeah. I yeah. Think okay. Good so, way to put it. Yeah. So, so all of that said, um, then where, where, and when did we finally get to a point where you wanted to step away from the Republican Party? And I, and I will say, I don't believe you you've not become a Democrat, um, correct? No, I have not. I'm, correct. Uh, currently a registered independent. Okay. I did not get to register as an independent. That is more than likely what I would be also. Um, I've been voting as a Democrat, but well, I'm registered Democrat, but I've been voted independently, gosh, since Perot, in all honesty. So <laughs> it's been, yeah, I know. Yeah, I fell for him. I love this charts. <laughs> love, loved every single okay. bit about it. Just, just take a look over here. Just look at these numbers. They don't make any sense. I love that guy. Okay, uh, so when did it occur for you, Don? When when was the the break, and when you felt felt like you needed to step away from the Republican Party? Um, the actual break took place after Charlottesville in 2017. Right. Um, however, I had been quite vocal and maybe even shocked myself when I think about it. Uh, staying staying a member of the party through 2016 um, and, and just seeing what a debacle um, our process led to uh, in, in the nominee. Um, but a after, after Mr. Trump became uh, the nominee, I knew there probably wasn't any place for me mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. left in, in the Republican Party. Um, I feel like um, the principles, and especially the principles that I went to Washington on and after the W. Bush campaign of compassionate conservatism, um, were, were mostly lost. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. Yeah, it... it um, I, I, I'm a very worst case scenario kind of guy. And when I just love to mull over possibilities and uh, it drives my wife absolutely insane that I will, 
you know, just <laughs> I can't stop. I'll mention one little thing that's kind of like, yeah, that's would be an odd thing to think about. And I will just keep going on it and keep going on it to where there's no <laughs> basis of reality for it anymore. But I but I did this. I did this with Trump and I didn't go that far um, from the reality of what happened with this guy on what I had said I thought were going to be potentially things that he would do. Um, you know, when he had not won 2016 yet, it seemed obvious to me that he was, if he, if he was intentionally playing a long game or a long con, he was intentionally setting up the potential for, you know, him saying that it was a fraudulent election if he lost. And, you know, way back in 2016, and he was testing his his base, you know, with the whole crazy comments. I could kill somebody in, you know, Times Square and you guys wouldn't even <laughs> care. Or I could tell you to kill somebody. Right. Yeah, I mean, holy moly, which uh, 20, I guess it would have to be almost 20 years ago that would have ruined somebody's campaign. But not anymore. Absolutely. No. Yeah. No, no, no. And, and the real frustration is not seeing Republican leaders stand up and call for that. Uh, the enablers are probably the deepest root of, um, of my disappointment in the party. Right, right. So, yeah, I think, and, and I remember, and I wasn't following politics the way I do now, and not that I'm on it every single second that it, that it comes up, but, you know, the whole reason I started this podcast was because just being someone who's capable to critically think I just I couldn't separate um what was true and what wasn't based on all the different sources that were out there and so I just started examining various sources and tried my best to learn about it and I've told people before honestly the first time that I really started critically understanding how to read newspaper articles and things like that was from one of my exercise physiology professors who just told us how they, they write. He was a, an author still is and how they will write stories though. And how it's just, it, it has, they come from a need more than they come from the fact and you fulfill the need when you write the article um, more than you fulfill it with facts. And uh, it just, you know, kept pointing to me that the need was at this point party over country. Um, and, and, and I, and I think the opposite of that is what you have, um, on your Facebook, um, thumbnail and, and other things. And that's actually country over politics or country over party. Country over party. Yeah. Country that was, over party. uh, that was a, um, a beginning that my friend Matthew Dowd from the uh, Bush administration started rallying around and calling people's attention to in 2016, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, didn't quite fully take off, but, uh, you know, there, it, it's still a, uh, a, a point that lots of folks make. Um, and talking about the media sources, Rob, you know, that's, it, it's such a problem to find, find the truth but it also is hard work and i think our society oh, yeah. has gotten away doing that hard work of critical thinking um we've all been sold on the fact that you've got to sell everybody everything in 30 seconds or less 
and that's what's happened to our politics. So even those leaders who are probably capable of doing good things, and this is on both sides of the aisle, I don't care who it is, mm-hmm. it, they know they don't have to dig deep enough to really understand what the long-term impacts of what they're proposing is because all they have to do is sell it in seconds to get enough votes to stay there. Yeah, gosh, that's just so disheartening. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, I guess you would you would if you have a short memory, um, you would think it's always been this way, but but it really but hasn't, it hasn't always been this way. It really hasn't. No. And uh, you know, I'm I'm thankful for people like yourself who has been in it, knows it's different, and is is more than willing to talk about. Um, what they see going wrong uh, with it and how that would change. You know, I, I many times will feel like just some guy standing on a soapbox, just yelling out into the, the ether um, with <laughs> the ideas that, you know, that, that I want to throw out there. And um, maybe this podcast will eventually take off and we'll have more people listen to it. And, and maybe it'll do a little bit of good. I know it's at least been nice for me and nice for some of the people who comment on it that um, we do, uh, you know, for the most part, all kind of land in the middle on, on our thoughts on things. And that's, that's refreshing uh, for me to be able to do that. So I'm, I'm happy for that. I've definitely had some people who have felt like it's, it's too one-sided and, and they've wanted to leave. And I've actually talked to them and I said, hey, come back. And, and, and I even once pulled back and did a mea culpa myself. Um, but I, I tell you, <laughs> it was talking about what do people have to hear Donald Trump do in order for them to want to walk away from him. And, and it's just the, the range of things that he would say and do um, just kind of blew my mind. And I didn't know what it would take for someone who was always Trump, 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 Trump to then all of a sudden say, Oh, Hey, that's too much. And, and even with the insurrection, it didn't happen. You still have the supporters. You still have the, the Republican votes. And um, I don't know. Did you did you think there was any way they were going to get that impeachment? I really thought that there was a possibility. Okay. I, when my old boss, Mitch McConnell, came out and started with the, this is going to be a vote of conscience um, and his initial calling on the evening of January 6th and following that there was a definite possibility. Um, and then we all know that just really went by the wayside because it was just a pure political calculation. Um, and sure I, was, am wasn't one who, I am one who does not believe that impeachment is a political tool (laughs) Mm -hmm. it it is in our constitution for a reason right Um, so the um, dereliction of duty uh, by 43 other senators um, is is something that should be looked at as well not to mention specifically those who uh, um, were brazen enough to raise their fist to the crowd on their way into the Capitol and wow. among others. Oh yeah. 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 Um, well, it just, yeah, it, it, 
I, I would hope that it wouldn't be just a political tool, but it certainly seems to be that way. And, um, yeah, it just, I, I don't, I, there were times with the first impeachment and, and with this one, I thought, well, can't they just send this to the Supreme Court? You know, but, you know, it's clearly in the Constitution. This is the House's role. This is the Senate's role. And, and right. uh, you know, it's just, it's, we, you're going to have to really break the system to uh, try to get it to do something like that. And, and while there have been leaders that have worried about the precedent it was setting, you know, about mm-hmm. impeaching of someone, it's just like, let's let's talk about <laughs> the precedent you've set that allows every incoming and future president to sit there and have an insurrection two weeks before he leaves office to just do it over and over again. You know, what's the president, what's yeah. the precedent yeah. of finding that much smarter authoritarian uh, that pu- pushes these ideas and actions down uh, down our throats, you mm-hmm. know, to the de- You know, the other thing you said about the media and sowing that distrust and the fact that the distrust began in 2016, you know, is, uh, boy, I just lost completely where I was going. That's okay. Is, um, that's what this is about. You know, we know we no longer trust our institutions. We no longer trust our leaders, our supposed leaders. We no longer trust our, uh, the foundations we were built on. Every, everybody's got a, an angle of twang and why it's been uh, uh, bastardized. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. That's perfect word. You know, for some reason or another. And, um, you know, I, I ran across a quote last I was starting to think about what we might talk about. And it was from Winston Churchill. It says, when eagles are silent, parrots begin to chatter. Mm-hmm. Boy, have we had a lot of parrots chattering for the last <laughs> five years. Right, right, no <laughs> yeah. doubt. No doubt. Yeah, there, there is, um, he, he seemed like he would eventually talk to me and he actually is a university of Kentucky graduate. That's just a complete coincidence, but there is a professor of bioethics in Massachusetts who, uh, his name is Dean Ho. And he wrote something, uh, I think it goes back to maybe 2013, um, just simply about the sort of the convoluted web that is woven by people that springs from um, uh, a known truth and then splinters away and becomes so disjointed and and almost untraceable back to the truth, yet it does through very sort of strange um, bent and intercross pathways. And I I can't really... uh, speak on it too much more than that but philosophically you know it's just it's it's just like you're saying it's a bastardization of the truth and you continue to think you're right and you search back for ideas and concepts that you think are the reasons why you're doing things uh at least that's his idea and i'd love to get him on there sometimes and and i've approached the people at allsides.com um who created the algorithm that measures the type of language that is used in media articles to say if it is center left leaning right leaning you know or extremes and uh, and there are some other people who have done that same type of research too the funny thing is i found out one of the worst things you can do 
to um, are the the strongest thing you can do to delegitimize what you're saying is to use the word truth in your title, <laughs> which is what I do because <laughs> I have truth or politics. <laughs> and uh, but that's, you Oops. know, they yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they found, you know, certain buzzwords and it was all these uh, sort of like high concept ideas that uh, really don't have a, a concrete um, uh, foundation to them, I think. And you can just throw those out. And that's where uh, people get in trouble, I guess. So, oh, boy. Um, okay. Okay, this is all really good stuff. Let's go ahead and just take a little break. And we'll be back in just a second. My favorite word is the word. The word. Isn't it a beautiful word when you think of it? It just covers everything. The word. <laughs> I know words. I have the best words. Words matter a lot. And I got the point across. Um, well, we've already covered uh, really uh, the, the divide uh, on the aisle and not not crossing it. And um, so I think before we try to get to some phone calls that we've got, we've got two phone calls that have come in. And um, I was really curious what you felt like was the status of the Republican Party in Kentucky which we know really hasn't had, um, well, I, okay, so we had a governor last time that was a Republican. And prior to that, I guess at one point we had Fletcher uh, back in the 90s. and uh, but not Early too, 2000s. Early 2000s, okay. So not too many other uh, Republican governors. And then, of course, you've got Louisville itself, which has not had a Republican mayor since the 60s. And uh, how do you feel about the, the Republican Party here in Kentucky? Is, is it a lot of the same of what you have seen in Washington? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, I laughed uh, at the time with, with uh, several folks when uh, Bevin was elected governor um, and said it in 2016 that we, you uh, know, led the pack in leading the country to Trump because uh, it it was so astonishing to me to see Bevin win. The night he won the primary, I was glued to my TV just like watching these counties flip, and I was just stunned. And then the general election, you know, it, it was again, it was just like, this can't really be happening, but it sure did. Um, so it was, you know, a, a total precursor to Trump. It really was. Um, the uh, interesting thing about the Republican Party in Kentucky is Mitch McConnell, obviously. Right. Uh, but we've also seen over the past few weeks on Senator McConnell's works after January 6th and after, after, I can't not emphasize that enough, after the impeachment vote, um, that the Nelson County Republican Party wanted to censure Senator McConnell. Uh, there, there was uh, there were two efforts spearheaded by the Nelson Republican Party. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we're not exempt from 
the discussions that are happening now uh, with the uh, split amongst the party, you know. Right. And, and the direction that th- that things are moving. Right now, though, the uh, Republican Party has a very firm grip on everything that's going on in Frankfurt. Uh, the only thing they don't have is the governor's office. And um, to see what kind of prime uh, that will be shaping up to be here in a very short amount of time um, is going to be really interesting and telling about what direction the party is going to go. Yeah. So do you feel like, I mean, is there, obviously in Louisville, we've had all the um, uh, horrible problems with uh, Breonna Taylor's um, issue and the the police and what they did with her. And, um, and then we had, you know, we were front and center on many of the the nights nationally with the uh, protests and uh, they were here in downtown Louisville and sometimes also became, I, I don't know if we can even call it a riot so much as they were just breaking a lot of things. Um, it, they weren't, right. they didn't seem to be necessarily engaging with police. For some reason, my definition of riot goes to that um, because the police basically just stand, stood down uh, in a lot of cases from what I remember seeing. Now, it doesn't mean they weren't there. Uh, they were just sort of there to control the, the outsides of it. But do you think that this is an opportunity for someone within the Republican Party to um, go into a role that would replace our, our current mayor? Or is this just for a stronger Democrat um, to, to potentially come in? What do you think about that potential? I don't see any room for any Republican advancement, really, in Jefferson Mm-hmm. Um, district or the mayor's race. Um, I may be fooling myself, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I see that happening. I don't think there are enough Republicans, maybe currently, um, in the county to even mount a legitimate <laughs> campaign. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whoever a Democratic nominee may be, right, right. I I always picture in my head what oh, couldn't couldn't an independent, you know, and I know they just can't, be, be, at least in, in this current state. But couldn't it couldn't an independent get in there and actually pull the good sides, the good things out of both sides, and and say this is going to be a true bipartisan effort. You know, and, 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 and this is what we really need to do. I just, I wish that was the case. I don't, I don't know. It would just take such an extraordinary personality. I think that would have to be so dynamic above all that. I don't know. Well, I've been dreaming of a third party since 1994 and mm-hmm. thought that was the beginning of, of where we would actually see a legitimate third party. Uh, I think the polarization we see now, everything is ripe for it. Um, the different movements that have come along the, the past four years, um, uh, there is opportunity there. Um, I think you'll see more and more independents get on ballots um, in the next two election cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an organization which I've just recently become familiar with called No Labels hmm. um, that I'm – 
digging deeper into. Uh, there's a Lincoln Party movement, which is separate from the Lincoln Project. Right. Uh, all of those things are going on. I think, I think the American just wants somebody to go to work and get stuff done for them and quit all the party bickering. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, I think the strength of the citizen voter that we saw come out in Georgia and which Charlie Booker is echoing here in Kentucky with his hood to the holler movement mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, are things that we're going to see popping up everywhere um, and, and really getting people to understand the power of their vote and to move their issues and the things they want to see done forward. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I would tend to agree with all that. And yeah, I mean, because of, again, the way that I uh, told you that I was interested in Perot way back in the early nineties, uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've had that same kind of dream that, that there would be some sort of stronger um, emergence of an independent or th- and or, and or third party. The and, system can't, the system can't last with the two party system the way it is, which only, only encourages truly the fringe far extremes of both parties in the uh, primary process and then tries tries to make either one of them legitimate candidates for a general election. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just doesn't work. Yeah. I think it's, it's a whole nother conversation, but I think that was, you know, I, I, I don't think the same result would happen if this individual got elected president, but I, I certainly saw the two almost polar opposites, but still having the same sort of fringe dynamic with Bernie Sanders and with Donald Trump. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, it just, it, 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 it amazed me in some cases how angry a lot of the Bernie Sanders people were. And I get it's because of the, the thought that it, he was robbed through the Hillary Clinton campaign and, and and slash the Democratic National Party, and so they have their anger. Towards and he him. was, yeah, right. And and but then they <laughs> didn't. Yeah, no, no, yeah, I'll go with you on that. But they read would... Donna Brazil's book if you haven't read it. Read Donna Brazil's book. Okay, I will check it out. On that whole thing, it was mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you know, there's there's a good reason, at least for me, uh, originally in my gut, I just didn't feel like I could vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, that was that that was the time that I told you that, uh, you know, Trump's first election, I got one vote for myself. And that was right. because I wouldn't vote for either of them. And and I and I thought about the libertarian route and uh, but just didn't have a good feel for that person. That's another interview I'd like to have at some point. Some folks from that party. Uh, I think that some things they have are good and others I just don't I can't agree with. So uh, I'm really enjoying this not affiliated with anyone. Yep. The free, yeah. the free agent route, I think, is going to garner folks a lot more support. When when people when people look at an individual candidate and see that they aren't controlled or beholden to one party or the other, I think that is going to be huge. Yeah, I agree. Well, if if you ever get to it, um, I would recommend um, listening to the episode that I have with Pastor Freisen. Um, who is an attorney who um, worked at West Virginia University and was one of their 
vice presidents in charge of uh, a, a division president in charge of diversity and and equity, and and then also uh, Darlene um, from the person who started the Truth or Politics in Eastern Kentucky and has had her own show for the last ten years, uh, Darlene Price, and um, she is is the same way. I mean, she has said many times. Um, don't be beholden to anybody. Don't take any money from anybody else. Just do what you've got to do to say what you've got to say. And, uh, and I mean, I can agree with that to a certain extent. Um, that's for sure. So let's, let's do this. Let's go ahead and go to our phone interviews. Uh, first one we're going to do, we're going to start off with John. Hey, Don. Hey, cousin Rob, this is John. Um, I, um, I'm calling because I'm uh, interested in this uh, topic. I'm uh, also a former uh, staff person for Senator McConnell. Uh, it was a long time ago, and it kind of um, makes me queasy to think about uh, having to work for him now. Um, so my question for discussion would be, um, since uh, McConnell has been there so long and, and has so much power and, and has, uh, in my eyes, done so much uh, damage to the institution and to uh, the country. Um, how how do we work towards uh, term limits? Um, obviously, the the people in power are not going to be favorable of that idea. But, but I'd be interested in seeing seeing what uh, what could be done at the grassroots. What could be um, uh, how we could get back to to a system that, that is more uh, representative of, of our, um, uh, our general population, gets more people with fresh ideas and different experiences a chance to serve. So uh, appreciate your, any conversation about that. Uh, I'm definitely in favor of term limits, uh, always have been, um, and I, uh, I think a majority of people are, and we'd love to hear some conversation about it. Uh, thanks to you both. Hi to you both. We'll, uh, Look forward to hearing it. Bye. All right. Rio, you hear him okay? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. It worked fine. Good. Well, let's let's go ahead and, and start thinking about that. What do we think about uh, term limits, Don? Well, once upon a time ago, against term limits because I had bought into the idea that um, the only way you could have power and influence in Washington was to actually have been there for years and years and years. Hmm your seniority. Uh, but I would say over the last 20 years, definitely when I went back to D.C. Uh, under the Bush administration, it was clear that there had there was a definite change uh, that needed to be made. Um, so I am now 110 percent behind term limits. Um, I'll be perfectly honest. The, the people have not shown themselves um to be worthy enough <laughs> in a lot of ways to cast the votes that they're cast opinion, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was always an argument. Well, the people need to speak. Well, if the people aren't going to educate themselves and take this, the time to actually learn what the system means, then, then they have to suffer the consequences of it. Um, 
that was really harsh. You might not want to put that in there. Well, well no, I, I, I think that's fair. I, I, this, this is this is the Don Riley I wanted to hear. I'm okay with that. Yeah. So when you say the people, though, what now are we talking about? The the voters need to educate themselves more about what. The, yes. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought you said. I I, I don't disagree with you at all. It's and yeah. and I think the the you know the the melee of the different types of information makes it difficult for people to, um, you know, get a, get a grip on what the issue really is and, 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 and cipher through the political nature of it. So it makes it hard for them to do that, but it doesn't mean they shouldn't stop trying to be able to get those things done. Right. No, um, I agree. And I think we talked about it, um, a little bit earlier that it takes hard work. It's yeah. going to take hard work for the voters to educate themselves. It's going to take someone in every state with the drive to start this movement uh, because to make this happen, like John stated, you know, the lawmakers aren't going to do it themselves because they enjoy their power way too much. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's going to have to come from the grassroots up, and it would require a three-fifths vote of the states. Um to, to bring about this change. So, but again, um, the more we see people like Stacey Abrams step up, the more we see people like Charlie Booker step up and create these organizations on the ground to register voters and to educate voters, um, it could become a reality. Um, I, I, again, I've said this on so many topics from basic policy issues in agriculture uh, um, to this, you know, the time is now. Um, we, we've all been burnt enough on so many different topics uh, lately that uh, I think everybody's really ready for a reset on practically every level. Well, I'll, I'll give you an agriculture slash conservationist um, uh idea there. And I remember sitting in my biology class, barely staying awake because of all the uh, pledge training I was going through. But I remember hearing the first, <laughs> the first time about the, the idea of burning the, the grounds and crops and everything. So the things could be reseeded. And I mm -hmm. think that is a, a fit analogy. Um, when you talk about people being burnt now, that, that there's room for new things to grow, to take Absolutely. seed. And I, I think that can be a, a wonderful sort of analogy that, that uh, is a great analogy that I'm probably going to steal from you. Mm, just give me credit, Don. It's all good. <laughs> just listen. To, I like. I've never heard this guy's podcast. I've been on it, but he's really good. He's got a saying. I'm going to say it. Okay. Wow. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's let's do one more thing. I want to double check and see who just popped in my my room for a second. But I still want to play Bradley's, and I think we're out. That was a great answer, by the way. Hold on, just a sec. All right, everybody. So this time I'm actually going to play Bradley's feedback. Well, I can't say feedback, but this question. Hi, Don. This is Bradley Roberts, co-host. Uh, I, I think it's a very noble thing and that's something that I, I did, not, to, not on a grand scale as you did, but leaving the Republican Party and taking a step back, especially after the uh, 2016 primaries is when I sort of stepped away and washed my hands of it. Um, and I think in the past two to three years that we've, We've really got to, I think, the, that there's been this sort of thing where people look back and try to 
nitpick stuff about certain politicians and stuff. And Ronald Reagan's really been one of those that's come under fire for some of the stuff, especially his, you know, his treatment of like the Iran Contra, which is something that's always been uh, controversial. But I think one thing that he did was the, the big tent politics, the big tent Republican Party. How do you think we we are we can bring some of those ideas of uh, inclusion into you know the Republican Party? If I mean I don't know if you, if you're you know, wholeheartedly supporting the Democratic Party now or what your exact stance is. But I think, but how does a party go back to big tent politics and make it work today's culture where I think there's, you know, there's a lot of people think there's a cancel culture of sorts and that there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, just such a vast here between the left and the right. Uh, I'm thanking you so much for doing the podcast. And I can't, hear what, can't wait to hear what you have to say. All right. Were you able to hear him okay? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And um, no, I was going to say, I'd like to start my answer with talking about Reagan, where, yes, he does um, flack on a lot of separate issues. But I think the thing about Reagan, which makes him completely different from what the Republican Party has just, unfortunately, what the entire country has had to experience, is that. Ronald Reagan was someone who brought people together and inspired them, at least with his words. Um, you know, there was a great, um, I think, amount of patriotism during his time. I, I know there are lots of separate in- instances, you know, and I've become more and more aware of them over the last few years. But I don't think there was an over-deliberate um, attack on the American way of life, government, and a deliberate motivation to uh, divide people, which is what we've seen here. And and to question <laughs> anything that's happened the last four years about divisiveness is you've had your head in the sand or you're just smoking way too much weed. Um, <laughs> so Go Colorado. <laughs> Of Colorado, uh, but um, to answer more directly the question about Big Tent and the Republican Party, I, in my personal opinion, and I can only speak for myself, I would never go back to the Republican Party after what's there. It's clearly shown itself uh, to be Trump to be completely incapable of uh, of welcoming anyone in with a different um, opinion or different policy issues or anything. For God's sakes, you know, they tried to kick Liz Cheney out of leadership, <laughs> you know. Amazing. It, it, it's absolutely astounding. Uh, the Republican Party did not have a party platform for their convention this year. It was only a statement and declaration of complete support for Donald Trump and giving him the right to do whatever the hell he wanted to do. Right. Which right. he did. Yep. You know, so don't talk to me about agreeing with policy or the party on policy or any of things like that. They completely abandoned that mode of operation. Um, and for many of us, um, and I would include mostly folks that I've talked to from our 43 alumni for Biden group, uh, which I was very pleased to be a part of. 
um, and it's now 43 Alumni for America. Um, you know, the trust that's been broken, um, we just won't go back. Mm-hmm. There, there, there has to be, there has to be something new to, to, or as we talked about earlier, we're all just friends and we pick the person over the party, no matter what, what the situation is. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Don, I, I, I wish we had a little bit more time. Uh, to talk, and I, I don't think this is going to be the last time that you and I will talk for um, just each other. That's for sure. But uh, for, <laughs> for, for for the podcast, I'd love to have you on again, and we can go through uh, whatever else is going to be happening in this world. You um, actually, uh, for those of you folks who didn't get to hear this, I was telling Don that I'm going to pursue some things about Native Americans and their history and, and where we currently are and. Don's already um, been able to come up with some resources for me, some sources for me on that. So I'm really looking forward to diving in with that and some future episodes that we'll put together for the podcast. But um, this is this is again what this whole podcast is about. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's it, it is that you know we we have to take an unbiased look at what we are fed um, in information and try to make good, just, truthful decisions that are important for the country. And, and that's really where I stand with that. And I really appreciate uh, the fact that you've done this for your country, that you're in uh, my, my home state and by God, you're close <laughs> enough for me to have a margarita with at some point. So. <laughs> yes. And I think that will definitely be on the calendar sooner rather than later. No doubt. As no soon doubt. as I can get a vaccination, I will feel really good about it. I know that. that's what I thought about. We can't do this until this dad gone vaccinate. I'm good. I'm, I'm there. Yeah, so you're we'll, good. Debbie Massey's good. Shout out to Deb. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get all that taken care of. All right. Well, thank you so much, Don. I uh, appreciate right. it. And uh, we're just going to cut it off from there. You have a great day. Everybody else out there have a great day. And uh, look forward to talking to everybody once again. All right. Thanks, Rob. Awesome, Don. Thanks so much. I never told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. These allegations are false. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. I'm not going to continue trying to respond to these repetitions of the falsehoods that have already been stated here. Read my lips. No new taxes. Our politics seems more vulnerable to conspiracy theories and outright fabrication. We choose truth over facts. Some of the most dishonest people in media are the so-called fact checkers. We will keep this promise to the American people. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor, period. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan, period. Just totally distorting everything possible concerning the facts.